morning, everybody. I'm Dominic, one of the elders here, and uh, stoked to share in the word with us this morning. So Matthew chapter 15, when you get it, say got it. If you got it, say got it. All right. We'll be starting in uh, verse 21, picking up where we left off last week after Paulo preached up until verse 20. So Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. I'm reading from the NASB. Jesus went out away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This is God's word today. Let's let's pray together. Lord, what great mercy we see in this story. You are a merciful God. We ask, Lord, that we would experience that mercy, and most of us have already. We ask that even more so today we would experience that. Ask that you would anoint my words. You would anoint me, Lord. I I surrender my lips and my mind to you, that you would... Speak to us as you see fit. We together just open our hearts now and our minds and our ears to hear whatever the Spirit would say to us who gather here today at Reality Ventura. We ask that your will would be done in our lives, in this place, even as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So this text here marks a turning point kind of in the ministry of Jesus, even geographically. Um, We're going to put up a little map here, but Jesus had been ministering down uh, by the Sea of Galilee, right, where that that body of water is right in the middle. And so now he takes this journey up pretty far north and a little bit west to this area of Tyre and Sidon. And these cities, Tyre and Sidon, they're kind of infamous in the Bible. They're always talked about in the context of being condemned for their idol worship, their arrogance, uh, the way that they used their, their power and their wealth. They were like a stronghold for the rejection of Yahweh. They were a, a symbol of godlessness, even practicing this ritual of infant sacrifice. Jesus would use them Um, as kind of an example of the worst of worst. We see one of those examples in Matthew chapter 11 when it says, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Even Tyre and Sidon would have repented, he's saying. They were like the epitome of what an unrepentant people looked like. And so he kind of holds them up. He holds this region up as uh, kind of a standard of wickedness and godlessness. So then his, his traveling up 
to that region, away from the area around the Sea of Galilee, uh, would have been significant, right? It would have um, not gone unnoticed. And the profundity of it certainly would not have been lost on the disciples. Their master is taking them to a hard, cold, godless place. And while they're there, they encounter this Canaanite woman. If you remember, the Canaanites were the ones who inhabited the land of Israel before Israel inhabited it, right? It was called the land of Canaan. Eventually it would be called the promised land, and then eventually it would be called the land of Israel. And the Canaanites were infamous for their evil in that land and for their idolatry. And that's why when Joshua went in, to, to take the promised land, he went in with the rest of Israel, that they were instructed to deal with the Canaanites thoroughly and to deal with their evil along with their idolatry, lest the Israelites be corrupted and polluted by the sin that was there. And this woman here in the story, she's a Canaanite. But interestingly enough, she uses Jesus' messianic title when she calls out to him. She says, Son of David. That's something only the, the Jews used. That was, that was their Messiah. That was the messianic title, Son of David. It appears that this Canaanite woman knows something that the rest of the, the residents of Tyre and Sidon didn't know. She wasn't a Jew, right? The Messiah coming to save his people wasn't a part of her story or her culture or her heritage. This wasn't something that her people were looking for. And yet she calls out to him, Son of David. Have mercy on me. This is profound right here. This is profound. As far as we know, Jesus had never even gone to that region. He had never been up there. And yet this woman way outside of the house of Israel knew this dude, this is the one. This, this is the one. This is the savior. This is the healer. He's the only one. This is the only one who can help us right now. She was a desperate woman in need of what only Jesus can give. In verse 23, it says that she kept crying out. It was this continual, like, kept, kept crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. She was desperate, man. And of course she was, right? Her daughter was suffering. She was helpless and in need of intervention. And not just intervention. This, need, this woman was in need of a miracle, she was a desperate woman crying out for a miracle, crying out for someone to save her daughter from her suffering. Son of David, the messianic title for Savior of Israel. Have mercy on me. Lord, save me. Save us from this suffering. And from what we know, from what we know in the Gospels, um, this seems like the perfect scenario for Jesus, right? He's there. There's this woman who needs something, who needs a miracle. Jesus is the miracle worker, worker. She comes to him. She's asking for help. And so we would assume that Jesus would respond like he always does, right? And say something awesome like, woman, your daughter's healed. Right? That's, that's what we have come to expect Jesus to do. But that's not what he says, at least not right away. In fact, we're told in verse 23 that Jesus didn't say a word. He didn't even say no at first. He just kind of ignores her. And then the disciples are like, Lord, just send her away. Just tell her to go away. Which, 
incidentally, is pretty much exactly what they said to Jesus uh, a few days prior in Matthew 14 before Jesus fed the 5,000. Remember, Chad, Chad preached on that a few weeks ago. They were like, Lord, these people are hungry. There's a bunch of them. We ain't got no food. Tell them to go into the towns and just get themselves some food. And there in Matthew 14, we see that Jesus uses that situation to teach the disciples something really valuable, right? This valuable lesson that if we, if we come to Jesus, no matter what we have, no matter how insignificant it may seem, he is powerful enough to take what we've got, in that case, just a couple fishes and loaves, right? And who we are and make something beautiful out of it, make something wonderful out of it. And it seems like here that maybe Jesus is doing the same thing. Maybe Jesus is trying to teach this woman, the disciples, and us something. If you learn anything from looking at the life of Jesus, you learn that there's always a bigger thing going on. There's always something bigger at play than what's right in front of us. There's always a lesson to be learned, not just for whoever Jesus is ministering to, but also for those who are watching and those who are gathered around, in this case, the disciples. And so it seems that Jesus kind of stretches this out a little bit. We know what he's eventually going to do, but it seems like he kind of stretches this out for a little bit. Like in order for this woman and the disciples to fully get the effect of what's going on here, he needs to draw it out a bit. And so at first he kind of corroborates the disciples' statement by saying in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm here to do God's work among the people of Israel, not the people of Tyre and Sidon. It's interesting that Jesus, in all of his ministry, though he was the savior of the world, that he never went to the important places of the ancient world, except for that one important city in Israel, which was Jerusalem, right? He never went to uh, Athens, Greece. He never went to Rome. He never went to Alexandria. He never went to these big important cities where we might expect the savior of the world and the someday king to go. But then again, maybe it's not that interesting. I mean, we do see in the Bible that God's plan and mission usually unfolds in a peculiar way. And this here is a peculiar incident. To get a little bit of a better understanding of what's going on here, we have to go all the way back to where the mission begins to unfold, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God begins to make this covenant with Abraham. I'm going to read this from Genesis 12 here. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, the land of Canaan. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So this is where God's mission begins to clearly unfold, right? Way back in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I'm going to establish a relationship with a particular people, and with a particular nation. And through that nation, not only will I bless them, but all the nations of the earth, earth will be blessed. God's mission would be to the whole world, but it would unfold in a particular and peculiar way. It would unfold through a man, Abraham. And it would unfold through a nation, Israel. 
And that's how we see it unfolding in the Gospels, right? Right before Jesus is born, Matthew 1 tells us that she will bear a son and he will save his people Israel from their sins. He will save his people Israel from their sins. But just after Jesus is born, in Luke 2, uh, he's called a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So this, this reflects the Abrahamic covenant, right? God would work through a particular person, through a particular nation, but eventually all the nations of the earth, the Gentiles, would be blessed through the nation of Israel. Paul breaks this kind of unfolding down pretty succinctly in Romans chapter 15. when he says, Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises that he gave to their ancestors. He also came... So that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. This is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you peoples of the earth. And in another place Isaiah said, To the heir of David's throne, David's throne, the king of Israel, will come. And he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. So this is the way that God's mission was intended to unfold to the world, right? First to the people of Israel and then to the Gentiles. This was God's plan. And Jesus is sticking to the plan. And he's always been sticking to the plan. Remember back in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent out the disciples to preach the good news? And he said, do not go among the Gentiles. Or enter any Samaritan city. But rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go tell the good news. But just to the house of Israel right now. Now, eventually, later on, like the end of the Gospels, we see like in Matthew 28, we see that he says the same thing. Go out and preach the, go- the Gospel, but this time, do it to the whole world. Right? Go, it's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And that was the way the script was intended to unfold. Like Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So Jesus' response here, which sounds cold and cruel, was actually consistent with how God's plan was intended and promised to unfold. This was how God wrote the script. And he started it all the way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And usually, Jesus stuck to the script. Except that one time in John chapter 2 when they're at the wedding and his mom asks him to do something. Right? Remember, like they run out of wine and his mom is like, Jesus, can you make some wine? Jesus responds and says, my time has not yet come. Right? My time has not yet come. And, but what ends up happening? Jesus ends up making some wine, right? Apparently, it's always in the script to obey your mama. Okay? But usually, Jesus was obeying his mom, right? Like, all the way back, we see people saying, Lord, come on, do this. My time has not yet come. Lord, come on, just heal up. My time has not yet come. Even when it came to the crucifixion, he's like, nope, it's not my time yet. But right here, that's what's happening. Jesus is sticking to the script. His response to the woman wasn't intended to be cold or cruel. 
He was just sticking to the plan of how God had intended to roll things out and in the order that God had intended to roll them out. But this woman is not just any woman. This is a persistent woman, right? She, she wouldn't take no for an answer. And we know from the parable that Jesus tells us in Luke 18 and from stories like the one we find in Exodus 32 that sometimes our importunity, which is an old word that means our persistent insisting, might actually cause God to change his course of action in order to have mercy on someone. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe that's what happens here. This woman was insisting with persistence. She wouldn't take no for an answer. We see that she finally, even verse 25, gets down on her knees and begs him, Lord, help me. And Jesus finally acknowledges her. He finally turns to her and says something. But it's not the response that we would expect Jesus to give, right? In verse 26, he says, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wait, what? This desperate mother comes to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, begging him to save her family, to help her demonized daughter. She's on her knees. She's crying out. And then Jesus responds like this. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, it sounds kind of cold, right? Like, can you imagine being this woman? And for some of us, it sounds kind of confusing. We're like, dude, what is, I don't even know what the heck that means. What does this mean? And I just want to say this. Maybe it's not as cold as it sounds at first. And maybe it's not as confusing or as obscure as it might sound at a, a first read. Especially when you take into context the, the other statement that Jesus made to the disciples. And when you take into context the geographical location of where they've just moved to, where they came from, and where they're currently at. So it's really simple. It's kind of like this. It's not kind of like this. It is like this. The children in this statement is the children of Israel. The bread is meant to signify the graces and favors of God bestowed on us through Christ. And the dogs, well, that was how the Jews, most of them anyways, probably the disciples for sure, saw those outside of Israel. Like, like a lower class, kind of a little bit less than. Now, Jesus would eventually flip this whole type of thinking, this like ranking system that, that Israel had upside down. He would flip it up on its head in the book of Acts. But at this point, the disciples are still learning. It's also noteworthy that this word that Jesus uses for dog isn't referring to the wild creatures that were out roaming about feeding on trash, but rather like a household pet. And not only that, but he uses the diminutive of the word, which means like the, the small. You know in Spanish when you put like ito at the end, like, right, like, uh, I can't think of something. But like a, oh, whatever. Somebody give me something in Spanish. Uh, what? Oh, poquito. But like, you know, like an actual word that you put ito on it, it means like little, like little boy. Ninito. Okay, there we go. You, know, you don't even speak Spanish, do you, Bar? Okay. So it's that same kind of thing, right, where he, he's the diminutive of the word, which means the little, like a little tiny puppy, like a little pet puppy is what he's actually saying to her. That's literally what it means, is like a little pet puppy. Jesus isn't meaning to insult here. Jesus is talking about priority here. He's talking about sequence. Like good parents, the father, in this case God, 
feeds his children, Israel first, and then the puppies, the Gentiles, second. The gospel must go first to the Jews before it is fully extended to the Gentiles. But still, a dog is a dog. Right? No matter how you spin it, even with this explanation, the simple fact is that there's this desperate woman begging, pleading with Jesus, please, Lord, heal my daughter. And Jesus, in so many words, basically says, no, not right now. It's harsh, right? No matter how you spin it, this is a harsh word that Jesus says to this woman. But... I would like to ask just for a moment if maybe there's something bigger going on here than what we see. Because we very seldom see Jesus speak with this kind of tone to anybody outside of the religious leaders, right? So let me for a minute just propose that maybe there's a part of the picture that we're not seeing. Um, as we often don't, right? There's, there's often things in life that we're just like, we just don't see it all. It seems like we know enough about Jesus to kind of be like, what the? Like to kind of flinch a little bit when we hear him say this statement. But we don't know anything really about this woman. So then is it possible that maybe there's more to the story? I know this might be a heavy thought, but what if this woman, like so many of us have in life, brought this on herself? I mean, she was a Canaanite. She was from Tyre and Sidon. She was from a culture that was infamous for their idol-worshiping, Yahweh-rejecting, child-sacrificing Baalism. What if she and her idol-worship rejection of Yahweh and her heritage of the demonic practice of sacrificing infants brought this upon herself and her family? Does God not judge sin? What if sin really does have consequences? And what if those consequences aren't just for us? What if our sin doesn't happen in a vacuum, but it affects those around us, our communities and our friends and our families, our children? What if this woman was reaping what she had sown? Then what if Galatians 6, 7 was actually true, where it says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Maybe she brought it all on herself, and maybe she knows it. It seems like, it seems like she does. Did you notice her choice of words in verse 22? She says, Lord, have mercy on me. She doesn't come to Jesus like the widow in Luke 18 and ask for justice. She gets on her knees and begs for mercy. And it's interesting to me that she doesn't ask Jesus to have mercy on her daughter, the one actually suffering, She asked Jesus to have mercy on her. Mercy. Not getting what you do deserve. In other words, Jesus, son of David, savior of the world, don't deal with me according to my actions. Don't deal with me justly. But please, Lord, do not give me what I deserve. But please, rather, deal with me according to your mercy. Maybe she knew that if her daughter was to be healed, it would be a direct result of her not getting what she really deserved. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he does. He does have mercy on her. 
Jesus responds to this plea for mercy as we have come to expect him to do. And Jesus heals her daughter. Here's what I love about this story. It puts on display the boundless mercy of God. It's boundless. The mercy of God has no bounds. Even though this woman was outside of the family of God, even though she was seemingly outside of the sequence of how God was planning on unfolding things, even though she was from a people who were far from God, who rejected God's ways, who practiced the evilest of evils, and even though through those practices she may have very well brought all of this suffering on herself and her family, Jesus still had mercy on her. And not just mercy, he gave her blessing. Not only did Jesus not judge her, he changed this woman's life. He changed her life. He changed her family's life forever. And you know what this shows me? It shows me that nobody is so jacked up or so far removed that God is not able and willing to pour out his mercy and blessing in their life. And you know what? Yeah, maybe you don't deserve it. Maybe I don't deserve it. But that's the point of mercy, right? We don't get what we deserve. That's the whole point of mercy. This text is about the boundless mercy of God. The mercy of God has no bounds. And we're all sitting here because of it. Apart from the mercy kindness and grace of God, we would always and forever find ourselves like this woman outside of the blessing of God with our pleas for help going totally unanswered and us never being welcomed at the table of the Lord. Because at the end of the day, none of us will ever perform well enough to get a seat at the table. No set of credentials can earn you a piece of bread. No amount of prayer and Bible reading can earn you even a crumb. No amount of righteous living or faith-filled obedience will ever get you a seat at the table. And yet, we find ourselves not outside in the courtyard, not on the front porch wishing we could come in. We don't find ourselves under the table like a little puppy feeding on scraps, we find ourselves seated with the king at the table. With the king at the table. And that will always and forever be something, not that we earned, that we could ever earn, but rather a gracious, merciful gift from God. Now, while a seat at the table cannot be earned, there is something in scripture about God responding to those who come to him in humility and faith, like this woman did. Right? Psalm 51, 17 says, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And the brother of James said, a brother of Jesus, James, said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This woman was, was humble, it seems. You know, she, she doesn't say to Jesus, I'm not a little dog. She, she's like, yes, Lord. She acknowledges, yeah, I get it. I, I don't deserve this. She humbles herself even and gets down on her knees. She bows before him. She gets down on her knees 
She knows she doesn't deserve it. She comes with this broken and contrite heart, and Jesus responds to her humility. And he responds to her faith, as he so often does, right? We, we see it time and time again that Jesus is like, your faith has made you well. Now, in all actuality, our faith doesn't have power, right? It's the power of God that was actually making people well. The object of our faith, it was actually like, that's where the power was at. And yet, there is something about having faith in God to do the impossible that God responds to. And how about this woman's faith? When she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And she, just like Jesus, uses uh, the diminutive of the word, like the little, the ito of the word, right, for crumb. Literally, she's not saying a crumb. She's saying a crumble. A crumb of a crumb. Jesus, even the crumb of a crumb that falls from your table is able to heal my daughter. Even the smallest crumble from your table is more than enough to meet my deepest need. Jesus responds to her humility and her faith. And he says to her in verse 28, Oh woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Wow. Right? I'll end with this thought. Why didn't Jesus just heal her right away? I mean, if he was going to heal her anyways, then why, why do this whole, like, dance? There's this, like, dance happening. Why not just do it in the first place? I think it's because there really was more at play here than what we see. And I think with God, there usually is. It seems that sometimes God waits to act in order to teach us something, grow us in some way, or bring himself more glory. You know, God's ways are not our ways. God's timing is not our timing. And often there's more to the story than we're able to see. And you guys, we have to trust God to be God. We have to trust that God is God and that we are not. And that his plan, though it may not make sense to us, is always the right one. God had a plan to unfold blessing to all of the nations. He always had a plan. And for every facet of our lives, he's got a plan. We may not get it. We may not see it. We may not understand it. We may not like it. But he does have a plan. And no matter what we think, his plan and his ways, his timing are always best. In this story, I mean, there was so much going on behind the scenes here, right? I mean, there was this sequence of the mission of God and how it was supposed to unfold. There was Jesus probably teaching the disciples something as they were observing this. There was maybe even this woman's consequences of her sin that needed to be felt a little bit. There was so much going on. But at the end of the day, mercy did triumph over judgment. At the end of the day, the disciples were better for it. This woman's daughter was better for it. This woman was better for it. And the plan of God unfolded in the way that I think it was supposed to. Sometimes the journey is the destination. Hashtag trust the process, right? 
and trust God in the process. We're so concerned so often about like, I, I got to get there. Like this, all of this is happening. This is like the journey to where I'm going. I just want to get there. I get it. When I'm on a plane touring and stuff, I'm like, I want to get there. I forget sometimes that like, this is the destination maybe. Like this person I'm sitting next to or just me being in the presence of God or whatever. This is the destination. God doesn't need me to get to wherever I'm flying to. He doesn't need you to finish your thing that you're doing. He probably wants to teach you something in the journey. Maybe there was a reason that it took the children of Israel 40 years to get to the promised land. It was supposed to be a three-week walk. Three weeks, that's how long it would take. It took them 40 years because often God is doing something. Often the journey is the destination. So today, I'll ask this. Are some of you feeling outside of the family of God today? Like this woman? Like, oh, dude, I'm far. I'm feeling far from God. Maybe you're feeling like or thinking like, I'm... I'm feeling like I'm outside of under the blessing of God. I'm far away from the blessing of God. Maybe you're like she probably was, and you've been partnering with darkness, man. And you're reaping what you have sown. There's all kinds of consequences for your sin right now. You're reaping what you have sown. You're suffering the consequences of your own actions. You need mercy. Today, you need the great mercy of God. I think some of us probably just feel like we got nothing left. We're just like, I don't, I don't have anything left, Lord, except surrender. I got nothing to offer. I got no strength. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I feel beat down. But I got, I got this. Right? And that's, that's beautiful. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. There is no one so far gone that God is not willing to have mercy on them. His mercy really does have no bounds. This woman was way outside of the family of God. And from an unbelievable heritage of people doing some of the most evil things that mankind has ever done. And Jesus, though he was slow to respond... And though there were maybe some lessons to be learned for everybody involved, he did eventually meet her deepest need. And we're no different. Today, Jesus can meet our deepest need. Amen? Amen. So listen, here's what we're going to do. I preached as short as I could so that we could have like a good time to just sit before God and respond to him. That's what this second set of Worship, musical worship is. That's why we do this. So that we can respond to the word of God. Yes, worship prepares us to receive the word of God. But the word of God prepares us to worship God. Right? We should be thankful today. Man, we should be thankful that God has brought us into his family. So don't just just leave today. Stay here. Come and partake of the Lord's Supper. Which, by the way, where's the communion? Can we get some communion? Is that possible? Um, Come, partake of the elements, man. Remember that it is because of the great mercy of God that he sent his son. 
It was the mercy of Jesus that he said, yeah, I'm going to make a way for you, everyone to come in to the presence of the Father. Come partake. Come get on your faces. Just like this woman, bow down before God and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. I can't believe your great mercy that you would seat me at your table. This is crazy. The prayer team is going to be up on the right and the left. Man, they would love to help you in any way possible. That's what they're there to do. They would just love to pray for you. Just come up to them and say, man, I need prayer. Maybe you just say, God, I, I need the mercy of God today. Maybe you're just like coming to church. You don't even, you're just figuring out this whole Jesus thing. But today God's speaking to you and he's saying, hey, I want to bring you into my family. That's why my son Jesus died. So you could come into my family. I want to, I want to save you from your sin. I want to bring you in. Man, these people would love to help you. This prayer, the, the person sitting next to you who you came with would probably love to just help you. It kind of leads you to Jesus by talking to him, by praying. But whatever it is, let's, let's not leave right away. Let's respond to God. Amen? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your great mercy on us. Thank you, Lord, that we find ourselves at the table of the Lord. Seated in this place that we really don't belong or deserve to be. We are here. Because of your great kindness toward us. Thank you, Lord. We want to say thank you. We want to say thank you. We respond now in just saying, gosh, Lord, you're awesome. You're awesome, Lord. Guys, as we come today, let's come to him in faith. Those believe Rather, those who come to God must believe that he is. That he is. He is what? That he is everything. That he is the I am. He is the great I am, the all-sufficient one, the all and in all. What do we need from him? What do you need from him today? God says, I am. I am that. Come to him believing that he is. And come to him in Humility, recognizing that you are not. You are not all-sufficient. You are not all-powerful. You are not all-knowing. You are not. But rather, you are, we are in need. So come like Hebrews 4, 16 says, and let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may have receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We're going to sing a song right now that uh, we haven't sang in years, and you might not know it. And so maybe you just look at the lyrics and let them sink in. Sometimes it's good to just not sing and to just let that, like, kind of the truth of that pour over you. But whatever you do, let's, let's really just respond to God and say whatever you need to say or however you need to respond today.